0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of 1 Peter, looking at chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, continuing our series, going through the book of 1 Peter, uh, picking up where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 this morning. That should be on the screen behind me if you happen not to have it. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, says this, Honor the emperor. In the ultimate fighting championships, in the UFC, you can win your fights in the same way that you would in boxing. You make it to the end, and then the judges score the fight, determine a winner. Or you can knock out your opponents. They leave themselves defenseless, so the, the fight is stopped by the referee for their safety. But because the UFC is more than just boxing, it also can use elbows and knees and feet. More than just using your gloved fists, you can also win, fairly commonly so, by your opponent tapping out, by them surrendering the fight. And the way that these guys get someone to tap is by putting him in what they call a submission hold. Your opponent coerces you to submit to them, to surrender to them not by asking nicely or by hoping that you'll be the bigger man and you'll just let them win the fight. No, they literally twist your arm into a pretzel where your options are to tap out, to submit, or to have your bones broken, your joints dislocated. I think when we think of submission, we likely have these same kinds of images in mind. We likely have this same kind of opposition in mind that I may submit to you eventually, but only if you twist my arm about it. I may submit to you, but only if I recognize that I'm not going to be able to defeat you. If you want my submission to you, you have to earn it. And while that all makes sense in a competitive fighting environment, that simply shouldn't be a feature of the life of a Christian toward governing authorities, according to this text. These verses, I think, go against much of our natural inclinations this morning, and maybe even much of what we think is part of our natural American spirit this morning. But I think we'll see as we get into it that the real point is that there is a way to serve God in the midst of even a hostile culture as we relate and submit to human authorities. So today in our text, we'll see three ways that we serve God in a hostile culture. The first way that we serve God in a hostile culture is by submitting to those in authority. I think that's a way that we can serve God even as we're in the midst of a culture which may persecute us by submitting to those who are in authority. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We are, from that verse, to be subject to every human institution. If you have a different translation here, it probably has even stronger language that you should submit To every human institution. You have to treat them as authoritative, respecting their authority as if you really are under it. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about these kinds of aspects for how Christians should live under authorities, and they'll talk about how you should respect them, but you shouldn't obey them. You should be subject to them unless you don't want to do whatever it is they're wanting you to do. You should be subject to them and submit to them unless they're wrong, And then that's when you get to do whatever it is you wanted to do to begin with. But Peter doesn't hedge here. He doesn't give any qualifications or asterisks. Though we'll talk about one that I think is implied here in a second. His simple command is to submit. He is telling us, as Christians, to obey human institutions. And we don't just submit. We don't just obey the important ones. This isn't just the FBI when they knock on your door, the police, the pilots. This is every human institution, he says. Whatever authority structure there is, that's what you submit to when you're underneath it. If your kid's little league coach tells you to stop heckling the volunteer umpire, I think you do it. You stop. If your supervisor at work asks you to help with a project, even if it's not technically in your job description, I think you do it. If your pastor says, we're headed in a certain direction, I think your first reaction shouldn't be to question, shouldn't be to be obstinate. I think you go that direction. Now, you can ask questions. You can be watchful for abuse. There is a limit to that kind of authority. But I think the first reaction should be to go along with what you're told. Okay, my house is not part of a subdivision. It's just on a street with houses on it. So we don't have an HOA, a Homeowners Association. And let me tell you, that was on purpose. (laughs) If we would have found the perfect house in a neighborhood that had an HOA, we still would have bought that house. It wouldn't have been enough for me to stop. But as the neighbor who would be known for not mowing his lawn if it weren't for my neighbor... In our neighborhood, I'm so glad we don't have an HOA. I'm so glad that I don't have to pay money every month for a group of people with nothing better to do to knock on my door and tell me that my grass is too high. I am so glad that I do not have that kind of earthly human institution and authority over me. But if I did, it doesn't matter how wrong I might think they are. I think it's my job to submit to them. They ask for dues, I pay them. They knock on my door and tell me to fix my fence, I fix it. I think that's part of what it looks like in these verses to do what Peter is telling us to do. The HOA is a human institution with authority over your neighborhood. So even if it just devolves into you paying $50 a month to get a letter saying that your grass is too high, I think Peter says, Hey, Christian, You have to submit to it. And he's not just saying that this is a good idea. He's not just saying that this would be nice if you would do it. He's saying that by you obeying human institutions, you're actually doing that for the Lord's sake. That as you obey them, you are by proxy obeying him. By you cutting your grass, not under compulsion, but willingly, as they have asked you to do, In that instance, you're actually doing service to them for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's purposes, as unto the Lord. And this is where I think the implied asterisk comes in on how we obey and submit to human institutions. Peter doesn't come right out and say this, but I think by wisdom and inference from the phrase, for the Lord's sake, we're able to get to that qualification that is necessary to have here. We obey human institutions right up to the point where obeying them would put us in sin. If they prohibit us from doing what God has commanded or command us to do what God has prohibited, then we can't obey that for the Lord's sake. That's just impossible. So we don't obey if that becomes sin for us, but that means that anything that's not sin should receive a reflexive compliance from the Christian. That means we're not the first, we're not the loudest, to raise a concern or to complain, to contest a direction that we've been given. What we are is we're the first to say, yeah, sure, I can do that. How can I help get this new direction started? Thank you for trying to protect our property values by this rule against the weeds in my yard. We are subject to every human institution because by our obedience to these lesser authorities, we remind ourselves and everyone around us that we are subject to the highest authority. We do it for the Lord's sake. And I think we do that even when the human institution is going to be in the wrong. We do that even when it costs us. Peter highlights specifically here the emperor as supreme and governors as his representatives who have been sent to punish the evil and to praise the good. He's specifically using government, the human governing institution, as something to which we are subject to as Christians. He's echoing Christ who said to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. He's telling Christians, you have to obey the emperor. And what's wild about this command from Peter is that he is writing these things to Christians who are already experiencing some persecution from the emperor. He's writing it to them to prepare them for how to live in a hostile world which is going to continue to persecute them even more under the direction of the emperor. Do you know who the emperor was when Peter wrote this? Nero. The one who we think may have set the city of Rome on fire himself on purpose. The one who supposedly played his fiddle while it was happening and then blamed Christians for it because they were an easy and unlikable scapegoat. Peter here says to obey, to submit to that emperor. Do you know who is going to kill Peter just a few years after he wrote this letter? The emperor, probably Nero himself. So Peter's first example, the one, the primary, first thing he puts forward of how to keep our conduct among unbelievers pure and honorable. From back in verse 12, the first example he gives for how to do that is to submit to the evil and ruthless, all-powerful man who is going to take Peter's own life in just a few short years. And you know what? I don't think that Peter changes his mind if he knows what's coming for him. The Holy Spirit who inspired Peter to write these words certainly already knew how Peter was going to die. Holy Spirit wasn't shocked by it. So I don't think Peter is a sap or a sheep for telling us to obey people who may even hate us. He's not putting that forward as a plan to get them to like us, that somehow if we'll be nice to them, they'll stop hitting us. No, Peter's saying that you are supposed to be obedient to human institutions even when they're wrong, even when they are evil, even when they are going to hurt you As you do good. Because in some way, that's how we live as Christians. We hope that they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But even if they don't, we're subject to them anyway. So now Peter also gives the principle for how a government is supposed to operate. That it's not supposed to be something that's actively hurting you or persecuting Christians. It's supposed to be something which punishes evil and praises those who do good. That's the basic framework for a good government to operate in. But regardless of how well your government may enforce that mandate, we are supposed to submit to it all the same, I think. If the Supreme Emperor gives you an order, if he sends you a governor, a representative, to give that order for him, then I think we obey it unless it would lead us into sin. I think we serve God even in a broken system, even in a hostile culture, in a hostile world, by submitting to those in authority. But the second way that we serve God, even in a hostile culture, is by doing good. We do good even if we are surrounded by evil. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This kind of life, is what God has for us. It's actually kind of hard to see that in the English, but the this in for this is the will of God, that's not so much looking forward in the sentence that for this is the will of God to do this kind of good. It's more likely referring back in verse 13 to the previous sentence. So it could read in the English more like for being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's simply what he has planned for us in his will. It's what he desires for us in his will. He's not surprised by how hard a command it is for us to follow. He's not confused about how to navigate the Christian life in a culture that doesn't always agree with us like we are. He didn't give the command and then check back in on Nero in a few years and go, "Ugh, wish I would have added a footnote on that one. Except for this guy. The kind of submission, the kind of service that I'm talking about is God's will for us. So we shouldn't be as quick to sidestep these commands as I think we sometimes are. And this will of God, of being subject to the human institutions, that is how we do the good that should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For this submission is the will of God. That by doing this specific kind of thing, which he is calling good, we might put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So our submission here, I think, is the good that we do. Paul even says something similar in Titus chapter three, verse one. He said, "Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work." While the context is a little bit different, there's still a connection here made between doing good and submitting to rulers and authorities. If anything, Paul is here making the point that by your submission to the ruling authorities, you're now going to have the chance, the opportunity to do even more good works. You'll have more opportunities in your community to do kingdom work because you are submissive in everything else. And I'll tell you, when you talk to pastors, when you talk to churches in their communities, they will say that this is absolutely true. The number one way to make the school down the street like you is by listening to them. By helping them, by serving them, by doing what they ask you to do. And wherever they have that kind of relationship with you, guess how much kingdom work you usually get to do? When we submit in all things reflexively, it frees us up to do more good culturally. I think that's part of what Peter is saying here too, that by doing this kind of good, the people who ignorantly, the people who foolishly think that Christians are here to overthrow the government, Are here to plunge society into chaos, that those people might be proved wrong. You can't call a Christian an anarchist if he's also paying his taxes, if he's also submitting to the local mayor. Christianity, the way of Jesus, was so new, so foreign in the places that Peter was writing to, that people were afraid of it. These Christians, they're getting together once a week to eat the body and drink the blood of a criminal. There's no telling what these people might be capable of. At least that's how people thought about it. If you didn't know any better, that's what it sounded like. So their submission to the government here took them from the natural level of weirdness that just accrued to them by being Christians and removed an obstacle to show the surrounding people that they were different, yes, but in a good way. They were different, yes, but in a compelling way. And I think if that's hard for us to understand, it's probably because we've lost those kind of differences. You see, they were so different that these commands, which are universal and still apply to us, those commands were actually going to make them seem more like the people around them. They're going to make them seem more normal than they currently appear to the people around them. But most of our problem today, I think, is that we tend to look too much like the people around us. There's no difference between us and them, between our lives and their lives. Their Christianity seemed too weird to be accepted, but I think ours is so often too accepted to be important. So I think part of how we obey these kinds of commands is in understanding them to the extent that we obey their fullness, not just the letter that we read. Our society, it's still largely a law and order society with some possible exceptions. We don't live in the Wild West. So submitting to the authorities, paying your taxes, that's normalized to the point that doing those things doesn't really feel particularly Christian. It just feels like it's what you do as a human, as an American. But I think we have to have a deeper understanding of these commands to see what makes them Christian. We have to remember that though the guy next to me pays the same sales tax that I do, I know that I'm doing that as an act of submission, not only to the government at the Walmart self-checkout, but to God. Okay, I don't think there's an especially Christian way to do that, that we have to do that. I don't think I have to cross myself while I'm waiting for the receipt to print. But I think I should remember that that act of submission to God is to God when all 8.75% of that sales tax gets paid. But my job as a Christian from these verses isn't completed at that point. Uh, I also have to see a wider application of verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The good I do is no less than the good someone else does in submitting to the governing authorities. But as a Christian, the good I do is supposed to be more than that. I don't only do that good. I also do whatever good I see that needs to be done. I also give to the church, which, causes, uh, which gives to causes like disaster relief, something that Southern Baptists actually do really well. I give to other missional causes in my community. I give of my time, of my prayer, of my advocacy. Through our church budget here at Pleasant Grove, as small as that budget may be, we give to a local kids shelter, a drug treatment center, a pregnancy resource center, and a homeless ministry. We also give to the Southern Baptist Convention, which does all of that and more on a very big and broad scale. There are people from this church who volunteer in those same ministries, who organize giving campaigns and drives and prayer meetings. As Christians, we're to take these kinds of opportunities to do good. And by doing that good of submitting to the authorities and by doing that good of doing all the good that we are able to do under their authority, which they allow us to do, I think we actually serve God in those moments. I think in those moments, we're able to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people when we do those things. But the third, the final way that we serve God in a hostile culture, I think is by using our freedom well. We use our freedom well, and in so doing, we are able to serve God. Look at verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Here again, the, the language I think is actually stronger than we might initially think. The, the ESV begins that sentence with the command to live as people who are free. But in the original text, the word live isn't there. In the original language, there's no verb there. It just says, as people who are free do these things. So we have to imply the verb. We have to imply the meaning. What is it we're supposed to do as people who are free? It's as if it's telling us to do whatever it's telling us to do as people who are free. And what's the thing it's been telling us to do over and over in these verses? To submit to the governing authorities. So I think we should submit even as people who are free. And in Christ, we know that's absolutely what we are. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In sending his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he has freed us from the righteous requirement of the law, which has been fulfilled in him through us. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In we who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are free absolutely in Christ through Christ. That's who we are. We're free from the law and we're free from our sins because we're in Christ. Because he, as the perfect son of God, lived the life that we couldn't live before dying the death that we deserve to die. When he broke the chains of sin and death for us by coming back to life, he freed us from those same chains on ourselves through this good news of his gospel. If you're in Christ, you're free. That's who and what you are. But that freedom isn't yours to do with as you please. And I get that that sounds backwards. That sounds like it's not freedom. Because we have this idea of freedom that's freedom from all restraint. The freedom to do anything, especially whatever someone else doesn't want us to do. But freedom in the Christian life doesn't work like that. For us, our freedom now isn't just about the freedom from sin, which has restrained our true life. It's now the freedom to submit and obey God in Christ. It's the freedom to live as we were intended to live to enjoy the life that we were intended to enjoy, which when we experience that, it's going to show us that this kind of freedom is actually true freedom. It's actually the best kind of freedom. It's a better way of thinking, a better way of living than what we had before. So we should use our new free lives, which we have, which were won for us by God in Christ, to obey God in Christ by submitting to the authority. Doing the opposite here, Peter says, would be using our freedom to cover up evil rather than living as servants of God. So the way in which we live under authority in our lives, especially since authority is designed to punish that which is evil and to praise that which is good, the way we live under that authority is part of how we serve God and how we reveal evil rather than cover it up. But so often we tend to think of authority in the opposite way, right? We tend to view authority with a certain kind of skepticism. And at this point in our culture, I think a lot of that is earned, right? When we assume politicians are lying to us, it's because it's hard to remember a time when they weren't. When we assume that the police are using too much force, it's because of all the times, all the videos we've seen, all the court cases when they did. When we raise our eyebrows after a church leader tells us, just trust me, it's because of all the times, all the news stories we've seen where they were trusted and they shouldn't have been. I get it. We've come to a point where skepticism of authority is a natural reaction based on the evidence that we've seen. I get it. But Peter here is calling us to a life which, because our sins have been paid for, and because we're free in Christ, also makes us free to submit to authority. It frees us to obey authority, even when that authority is imperfect. And even the best authority is still going to be imperfect. It frees us to do this. It commands us to do this. Because evidently, there's something about how we react to authority that keeps us from covering up evil. I think what these verses are telling us is that good authority, which does its job, and submissive Christians which do their jobs, actually is going to keep us from covering up evil, not encourage us and provide the grounds to cover it up. When the church leader is doing his job, there's no abuse by him to cover up. When the church member is doing their job, there's no distrust that has to be overcome. This kind of trust, this kind of integrity worked out in a relationship of right authority and trust and submission. I think that actually sets the stage for a lot of good to happen. It creates the environment in which serving God is actually more likely to occur rather than less. Because that, serving God, is the ultimate goal of our newfound freedom. It's not just submission as an end of itself. It's submission as service to God. Stronger than that even, as slavery to God. You can see Paul talk about this concept in Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the connection, the clear line is being drawn between your servanthood, your slavery to God, which from Peter is actually the result of your submission to human authority, which you submit to as God's servant, the connection between your submission and the fruit of that life, sanctification, holiness, which leads to eternal life as God's free gift for his people. Your submission isn't just about submission itself. It's not just about compliance. It's about your life. It's about you seizing that which Christ died to give you. It's about the life that that kind of submission leads to. If you leave today thinking that all I've talked about had some kind of ulterior motive, that I was just trying to make stuff easier for me as I tell you what to do as your pastor, If you think that everything that I said was just to make things easier for your boss when you go back to work on Tuesday morning, then you've missed the point here. We submit to, we obey our earthly authorities. Because when we do that, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, who obeyed earthly authority even as it sentenced him to death on a cross. And when we follow him in these steps, in the will of God, which is actually what was happening as he was being sentenced to death on the cross. We're going to arrive at the life that he won for us through his obedience to give to us. This isn't just about making things easier for the authorities in your life. It's about you actually having, about you actually finding that life that Christ died and rose to give you. And this kind of life, it's a life that is marked by, it is always seen with honor. Look back at verse 17, honor everyone love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor and submission, they're closely linked. It would be hard to state a clear difference between the two. Most often when you get one, you have the honor, the other. So we are to honor everyone, to give them respect and obedience when we're able to do so, whoever that may be, honor toward all, but toward fellow Christians, fellow church members, we have not only honor, but love, which amplifies things, right? It takes things to a next step. You can honor someone without really loving them, but you cannot love them without also honoring them. The way that we interact with the brotherhood, with our fellow believers, that should be characterized not only by honor, but also by love. But then whenever it comes to God, we have another layer added here. We fear God. That fear has wonder and honor and love all wrapped up in it, as I talked about a few weeks ago. But it also has fear. Proverbs 1, seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So as we put to silence foolish people in their ignorance, that has to start with a fear of God. They may be foolish and ignorant, but we fear God, so we can't be those things. But notice here that God is the only one that we fear. We fear him, but when it comes back to the emperor, we're back to honor. We honor the emperor, but we don't fear him. So I think we have to view him in his proper place. We have to have a right estimation for how we view the emperor. And the closest thing to that idea that we would have today in our culture, in right now, 2023 America, that's the president, right? I mean, his powers are nowhere near the emperor's over us. But if we're looking for a singular, powerful figure over our lives who is part of human institutions that we should honor, man, I think the president is where our eyes naturally go. And I promise, politics is not something I like talking about particularly while I'm standing right here behind this pulpit. It's not something I plan to talk about very often or something I'm actively looking for ways to bring up. I promise, I assure you, I would much rather keep my mouth shut. But when God tells us to honor the emperor, that's an inherently political statement that I think we have to deal with. Therefore, let me say this although you do get a voice in choosing which emperor is going to be honored every four years in this country, you do not get to choose whether you are going to honor whoever that emperor may be. As a Christian, the phrase, not my president, whoever it is that pops into your head when you say that, that's not something we get to say. It's not something we get to use as Christians. I think we should honor the office and the man or woman in that office. We speak about them with respect and honor. We hold them accountable to fulfill the oath that they took to the Constitution with respect and honor. Okay, if their mother or their husband wouldn't like how we're talking about them, maybe we should say something different. Because I promise God has a higher standard for our conduct than their mother or their husband may. Okay, we are staring down the barrel of possibly the most toxic and volatile political period in our nation since the Civil War. And if there is going to be a group of adults in the room, a group of reasonable people in the room, if there are going to be people living honorably in the midst of all this, let that be us. Let we be the people who are the voice of reason. Let we be the people who conduct ourselves with honor. Let us not be the first to post a meme that we think is funny, if it doesn't honor who we think it's about. No, we honor the emperor. And what I love about this is that we honor him like we honor everyone. That's what part of what I appreciate about how Peter wrote this for us. It begins with honor for everyone, and it ends with honor for the emperor with love of the brotherhood and fear of God in between. So just as we would with all people, we honor the emperor. He's not less than a person. We don't treat him worse than we would anyone else just because he's the emperor. He's not worse than whoever the cashier is at McDonald's. But he also doesn't get preferential treatment. He's not on some magical pedestal with all deference going toward him. We treat him with honor just as we would treat anyone else with honor. Not with any kind of special or particular honor that's higher and greater than the receptionist at the doctor's office we go to. No, we honor them both. We treat them both as humans with respect, with dignity, with humanity. We treat people with humanity as a part of our service to God. But God is the only one that we fear. The emperor, he gets his honor, but God gets his fear. We only fear God because he is over the emperor. We fear no one else. If you aren't even supposed to fear the emperor, who else is left to fear other than God? And I think that brings this whole discussion back into focus. When we honor the emperor, we're serving and fearing God, not Biden. But because we serve and fear God, we submit to, we honor President Joe Biden. But because we serve and fear God, if President Joe Biden tells us to sin, that's where our submission stops. Those are the rules. And those rules do not change if the letter next to his name changes from a D to an R. That's who we are. That's how we interact with authority. That's how we obey God and serve him by submitting to earthly human institutions. For the Lord's sake, we are subject to every human institution. We fear him, so we submit to them. And when we do that, when we live these kinds of lives, I think we're able to pursue, we're able to see the good use of authority in praising the good and condemning the evil. We're able to live in our newfound freedom. Not as a way to enact evil, but a way to live as servants, slaves to God. We treat everyone how we should treat them. So now there is no leg to stand on whenever our culture may attack us. These are the things we pursue together as God's servants who have been freed by his gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people, to hear it preached, to sing your songs of praise. Help for us to hear these words and to obey them, submit to them just as we're supposed to submit to human authority. Thank you for the goodness that we can see in these commands, in these verses. And help for us to have the wisdom to navigate through it. To know where those lines are. To know when sin is commanded. To know when worship is prohibited. Help for us to navigate through that kind of life with the right inclinations, the right foundations. That we love you and serve you. We fear you by submitting to them. By honoring them, whoever they may be. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.